Welcome to The Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we welcome John Roach into the podcast studio. John is an associate vice president, structural engineer, and office engineering leader in the Denver location for Canon Design. He has a world of experience in, you guessed it, engineering. Whether it comes to structural, maybe looking at mechanical a little bit, even lighting and electrical, he understands what it takes to not only design a building, but to make sure that everything needs to go in it, goes in it, and works the way it needs to work. Today, we're going to talk to John a little bit more about the importance of aesthetics in engineering, something that you may not necessarily associate the trade with, but something that really is very, very important. John, welcome to the podcast. How's everything going? Thanks. Good to be here. It's great to have you here. I appreciate you taking some time out of your journey to lead the Denver office. I know you're actually remote-based now, which is the joy of 2022, but it's great to have you in the studio to talk to you a little bit more about what your passion is, which is solving big problems, right? Creating incredible environments and making sure that everything that needs to be in them is in them. Before we dive into today's topic a little bit more, tell everybody, who's John and how'd you get your start in this awesome industry? I've always had this fascination with buildings and the built environment. I've always been interested in building things. Going back to when I was little, grabbing a hammer and some tools and nailing some wood together with my friends in the neighborhood. And I thought for a long time about going into architecture because that's what I associated with with designing buildings. One thing led to another and I ended up in structural engineering. And a part of that is my work building sets in high school. You know, the director would, would hand us a scribble and it would be here, make this a reality. And no, you don't have as much money to work with as you want. And no, you don't have any space to build it. And my life hasn't really changed much since then. You know, the roles and the names have changed, but it's still the same thing. It's still all fun, isn't it? It's still all fun. But, you know, the other thing that I did in high school with set construction was it got me on the lighting crew. And so working both sides of that for productions was a lot of fun. And, and that's sort of also my introduction to the world of lighting. Lighting is a... An interesting medium. It's used every day all over the world, whether you want it or not. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. Electric light is in buildings. It's also in theater. Talk to me just a little bit more about your relationship with light and how you've come to observe it both personally and professionally. It's interesting because you'd think that light and structure are two very different things. Light being completely intangible all around us, but it's everywhere and it's nowhere. Whereas structure, you can feel it, touch it. It's very discreet. It has clear form. I suppose in in high school and working with those two disciplines together and independently of one another, you start to see more commonality. And I think that that was something that I'd always observed in architecture, that there are different qualities, both tangible and intangible. I see it as they're different, but they're related in the sense that each one has an aesthetic quality associated with it that equally influences the built environment. And when you talk about equally influencing the built environment, there's kind of two components there, right? There's the need for it, and then there's the beauty of it. When you're looking at design, when you're looking at which one comes first, is it a chicken and the egg thing, or is it obvious? Depends on how you look at it, but I think that it's a complicated question, and I think it's one that everybody's been looking at and thinking about forever, so I don't think we're going to exactly come up with a firm answer, but my take on it is that there is a certain amount of functionality that has to go into making something engineered, right? If it's just form without function, it becomes sculpture. 
it's more art. Not not to say that art doesn't have function, but there's an artistic quality that supersedes its functionality. Engineering and design for the built environment, I think, is striking the balance between those two. So which comes first? It is a chicken and egg type situation, but I think that without a concept, without a aesthetic goal, then there's nothing for structure to follow. The design needs a path, and an aesthetic goal provides something to aim for. It provides a path forward. And then everything that follows, everything in engineered design should really be in service to that goal and in service to the functionality. When you talk about complementing that goal, there's lots that goes into that. Obviously, from a standpoint of you need definition in order to be able to follow something to support that ultimate vision, that's a given. But maybe what's not so given is how that happens. We refer to that as coordination, typically in the design world. Talk to me just a little bit about you know, what it means to have to take these things that hold equal weight in terms of, hey, we need this in order for it to be complete. Maybe even like, you know, have a legal document that says people are allowed to be here like a CO. But then you also want to at the same time have some of your own creative collective ideas to, I won't say change the intent, but support and evolve that intent, which requires that beautiful word of coordination. And typically it needs to start a little bit earlier than people think about it. It can never start soon enough, right? Well, it's it's the question of the process. And so it's the process that leads to the product. If you don't have a good process, you won't have a good product. At the end of the day, that is what we do as architects and engineers. We are creating a product. And that's not to commoditize our services, but we're contracted to design buildings or other things. And it's something tangible that people interact with. So a building, as you alluded to, has to follow code. There are rules, there are regulations, there are rigid things that govern our professions, the way that we do things, codes of ethics and everything else. But then there's a lot more that's left up to the imagination, you know, how you get from point A to point B. How do you get from that scribble on paper to a building that people are living and working in and doing research in? And that's the design process. And you use the word coordination. I think that's half of it. I think that my suggestion would be an even better word to be collaboration. Because coordination, I think, implies that people are sort of working around each other uh, to the extent that they need to. And collaboration implies something maybe more proactive, where people are enthusiastic and willing participants. So we've talked about it in abstract terms. What I think that translates to is when we're designing a building, as you alluded to, it means that from the day we put pencil to paper, from day one, we need to be talking to each other. So you think about a building that is located on a site. Let's pretend it's a brand new building in a greenfield site. What are we doing to make it sustainable? What are we doing to bring out uh, the best elements that benefit the occupants? Those questions are significant because it affects how we put the building on the site. So we can't even think about building form till we start to think about that. And when we talk about sustainability, we're looking at building orientation. So all these voices need to be a part of the conversation, voices that can intelligently speak to the best way to orient the building for solar gain or solar out, minimizing glare, ways to site the building to mitigate environmental impact, wetlands, things like that. And then how can the shape of the building and its size influence the size of the mechanical systems and the performance of those systems? So there are all these things that have immense downstream effect that if we lose sight of them on day one, we're already behind. 
So it's that collaboration process can never start soon enough. It has to happen before we even think about what the building looks like. I'm going to pick on you and your firm a little bit. Canon Design, you all are massive tens of thousands oh, of no. employees. No, Millions of employees. Millions. No, uh, <laughs> uh, no we're uh, 1,100 people uh, across the U.S. and Canada. So you've got 1,100 people working across a multitude of different trades. You would think that when you have different engineering trades, uh, different architecture trades, different perspectives all under one name, one brand, it's just all there. Everybody is collaborating nonstop all the time, but we're all human and we all have a job to do and we all have a, a key role to fit in. Obviously at Canon, you all have a an opportunity to maybe lay that foundation or that framework a little bit more given the fact that you could go win a project and provide everything from start to finish. So you've got this new role that you're leading an office here in Denver, Colorado, trying to learn how to not only breed all that, but put it all together as you've evolved in your career from maybe a, a more siloed opportunity to just be a, a contributing engineer to a leading engineer and watching an entire team come together and create that collaboration, what do you feel is the foundation for success in order for something like that to be created? Trust is the biggest thing. You need trust in a couple of different ways. One. I come into an office here as an engineering leader for an office that is established, uh, that has its own leadership, and I need to ensure that I put everything forward in, in a meaningful way uh, with clarity and bring clear benefit to the work that they're already doing, the great work that they're already doing. They have clients that are important to them, relationships that are important to them, and in order to grow the engineering practice here, I need to work with those clients and work with the designers and architects that are already here. And so it's a matter of helping them build a level of trust in what I can bring and who I can connect them with. It's less about what I can do than me as sort of a, a communication node, that there's these people over here in Denver and then these other thousand people across the firm and trying to connect person A uh, in Denver with person B in Baltimore or person C in DC. That's a part of it. That's a big part of it. In addition, there's a certain level of trust that has to exist within a design team. So it's sort of a smaller group of people, but it's that broad multidisciplinary group that you just mentioned. You know, any project of any size has architects, engineers, uh, lighting designers, landscape architects, it is the nature of the industry. But we should be working in an environment, like I was saying earlier, from the start of a project, in order for that project to be successful, you need the different expertise that everybody can bring to the table, which means you need to have a level of trust there that their ideas are going to be accepted and people feel comfortable contributing their ideas. I always like to encourage people to venture far outside their wheelhouse, throw ideas at the wall, see what sticks. You know, just because if you're a mechanical engineer, if you have an idea about the elevators, I want to hear it. If you have an idea about the landscape, put it out there. Because we do tend to get siloed in some ways. We are all passionate about our own individual disciplines, our own individual areas of practice. And sometimes we become focused on what we've done before and what we're used to doing. And we don't even know what we don't know until someone from outside with a totally fresh perspective has a different way of looking at it. And you get those aha moments of collaboration. Those aha moments are huge, right? Those aha moments aren't designed. Those aha moments aren't planned for. They just happen. 
They happen when people are listening, when people trust each other, when people are truly collaborating, whether or not it's a firm that has everything in it, or it's 16 different firms working across a project together. It goes without saying that today, technology is a huge thing that is in every building, whether or not it's just a simple thing like keeping the doors locked or a room dynamically responding to the occupants that are in the space. There's something that is always going to influence, quote, the user experience. When you think about lighting specifically and what it's done to help shape that collaboration, where do you see it having a bigger seat at the table than it used to? Well, lighting is a lot different than other types of engineering. It's like other types of engineering in that it's it's taking systems and putting them together to create something that functions. But it's unlike other engineering systems in that it has an aesthetic quality. Aside from your plumbing fire protection engineer, there aren't a lot of people walking through the building looking up and sort of gawking at the sprinkler system and fire suppression. So it is unique in that way. And I think that's where the parallels come in with structure because in structural engineering, we're, we're designing things that are of the building itself and not just things appended to it or put inside of it. And that offers an opportunity for structure to be expressed in, in an aesthetically meaningful way, the same way that lighting is. So that I think is where lighting has a, a bigger seat at the table from an, and it's from that aesthetic standpoint where beyond its functionality, we can use light to create different stories and weave themes through a building in a way that we don't with other systems. It can influence the way building occupants feel in a way that other systems can't. And it's dynamic. And users interact with it in a way that they don't with other systems. Your facilities group might be working on the air handlers or the generators, but your users are the ones that are interacting with the lighting systems. It's all about the aesthetic, right, that shapes, creates those spaces, those moments to tell those stories. You can theoretically say, this is what I want it to look like, but fundamentally, there's a lot of challenges that go into that, from what equipment do you use to do that? How much does it cost? How do you power it? How do you install it? How do you maintain it? So on and so forth. I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into the supercharged nature of how aesthetics might end up driving more than we think when it comes to the true essence of an engineering practice. Sound good? Yes. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick. The Light Pod is brought to you by LightEye a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. They bring you things like this podcast and short, fun, quick, informative videos that celebrate light, that talk about light, that help you learn a little bit more about light. Check them out at lytei.com. And welcome back. Over the break, John and I were chatting just a little bit more about the nature of the beast. I mean, engineering is engineering, John. There's there's a lot of technicality that goes into it. There's a lot of codes that you know to comply with. There's some simple math. There's some complex math. But there's just a lot of fundamental stuff that has to happen when it comes to the practice of engineering. People may think of, you know, industrial design or like, you know, building the next beautiful car or some incredible handheld product that has all this stuff packed into it that's ergonomically tuned in being like, you know, the essence of taking engineering and making it beautiful and usable. People take buildings for granted. They just walk in and out of them all day long. There's an experience that in today's world, 
they don't even control. It's all automated, but it is at some point responsive to them and what they need and what they're doing in the space. And they probably don't even understand how much work goes into studying, you know, human behavior patterns and what a built environment can do for someone to improve their quality of life. Light is the topic of conversation right now on this one. It's theoretically, you know, going to make a space look like something, but there's a lot more that goes into it than just saying, we want to create this moment. We want people to look at that. We want them to walk this way. We got to talk about what's going to do it, how it's going to happen, how you're going to collaborate, how you're going to coordinate, how that supports the overall design intent. There's so much to unpack here. Where do we start? The design process, right? That That's what we're really getting at is it's not just drawing a pretty picture of something. Turns out there's more to it than that. And I think that that's sometimes lost on people, that it's there's a nature to it that's sort of, it, the art is the tip of the iceberg. It's the difference between art and design of the built environment, the difference between art and architecture. There's a certain responsibility, I think, that comes with that. You say that people take the built environment for granted. I'm not sure if, if that's as true as designers think it is. Because I will bet that everybody listening to this podcast who is involved in design in some way, and I think most people are involved in design in some way, most people create something, even if they're not architects or engineers. I think most people listening to this podcast who do that were influenced in some way, shape, or form by the built environment. Specifically to us as designers, I think that we, in our experiences day to day, the schools we went to, the houses we grew up in, the places we work, Many of us are cognizant of the fact that we we took certain cues from those environments and continue to take certain cues from those environments and incorporate them in our work. I think anybody, again, in the design industry that's walking around on the street sees something that seems like a good idea. Those things, those moments jump out at you. And so I think that the design process at its best is incorporating those moments, those aha moments that we were just talking about a minute ago into the process. And, And maybe that's the fun part of design, but... As I think you were suggesting, there's the sometimes less fun, the the contracts, the vendor pricing, there's all kinds of environmental considerations, there's construction issues, RFIs, change orders, and that's the nature of the industry. And, and you wonder, and this is an open question that if either one of us had the answer to here, we'd be, you know, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> hold but, on, hold on, hold on. Oh, the crystal ball is not in the cabinet. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. Well, the question is, how do we work within it? What do we do? We, We know what the reality is. How do we manage it? How do we plan for it? And it's sort of walking that fine line between catastrophizing and assuming, oh, everything's going to go wrong and we got to plan for the worst and sort of being naive about it. But I think the key to it is, Again, comes back to trust. You build trust within teams, build trust between design teams and the clients, and trust between the industry and the public. And those big, scary monsters start to become a lot more manageable. The scary monsters, they probably aren't really hiding in closets, right? And within the industry, you might know where they are, where they're coming from. But there's an important piece of every project, and that's the owner. The group, the organization, and sometimes a single individual who wants to create this space or this environment. When you're out there, you know, looking at that landscape all the way outside of our industry, just saying, hey, there's people here who are trying to do certain things. What do you find are their biggest concerns or questions? And how can we respond to that as an industry by gaining their trust through that collaborative effort? 
I think sometimes as designers, we overestimate the idea that people make their decisions entirely based on data and logic and rationality. We're all human and owners and end users are all human too. And as much as we want to talk about data-driven design and things like that, there's a very human element that can't get lost. And we have to understand that there are certain needs and concerns that they have, and it varies from organization to organization, owner to owner, that need to be addressed, that they're sensitive to, that they care about, that we need to understand, and we need to address them in a meaningful way and take them seriously. That's the key. That's the key to a project being successful. Like I said, it, it varies between organizations, but there are certain themes and certain aspects that are true no matter who the owner is. I mean, people want a safe environment. They want a comfortable environment. If I had to generate they want an environment where they could thrive, whether it's a business, whether it's residents, whether it's a healthcare institution. It's environments that support people reaching their best, their full potential. If we approach design with that being the most important thing, then that puts us in a really good position to be successful, no matter who the owner is. And when you think about lighting and how it influences or, or helps create the position around all of that, are people out there asking hey, you know, what specific trades are, are important that we pay attention to? Or do you have to explain to people that there's two sides to the coin for certain things? I think people understand that different design disciplines impact the built environment in different ways. And for someone who isn't living and breathing the world of engineering every day, it, sometimes the nuance isn't as important. But I think there's an intuition. People know when they're in a light-filled space that they feel better. People know certain things that they interact with make them feel a certain way. So that may not be as true for some other engineering systems. Again, you're hopefully never using your fire protection system or you're not going to interact with your standby generators that same way. But when you're talking about light, it's something that is there, it's present all the time. And so I think end users and owners see that differently, whether they realize it or not. And because of that, I don't think it's a hard sell. It's not difficult. It's sort of, it sort of sells itself. It, sometimes you need to point it out and talk about it in a meaningful way, talk about it in a way that can connect with what they care about, with what's important to them. But beyond that, it's so omnipresent that it's hard to miss. I agree with you. It's hard to miss and, and people understand a light-filled room. But I'm not so sure they necessarily stop to think about the fact that that's there. People hit a light switch. They don't go up and like aim all the lights in the theater, dim everything to the right level, and then be like, oh, now it feels good. They you just mean, walk not, in and create Not an everyone does that? No, not everyone does that. But maybe you and I do. <laughs> well, I think this, this, this is where we come back around. This is where we come back around to where light and structure share something in common, is that everything you just said is also true about structural engineering. People experience it. They know the roof is over their head. They know where the columns are. They can understand at a fundamental level, intuitively, how the building's standing up, whether or not they know the finer points of structural engineering. There are certain load paths that are visible. You can see how the beams and the columns take the roof down to the foundations, and it, it all becomes clear from an intuitive standpoint. That, in and of itself, is, is very similar to the way that you describe people interacting with light. And so these two different systems are, are alike in that way. But I'm not sure if it matters so much that people understand those finer things, as long as the experience is what they're looking for, as long as that level of comfort is there. 
Now, a structural expression can go from something that's simple and functional, and that has its own thing, to something that's really expressive. And you know a landmark building when you see it, and chances are it has some very strong structural expression associated with it. When I talk about the John Hancock building in Chicago, you, you can picture it in your mind. You know, you probably automatically think about those big cross braces on Trapezoidal, the Trapezoidal, two cross exactly. braces, antennas on top. It's beautiful. Right. And it's, the, it's, got an, it's got an iconic aesthetic. But no, I, I don't think about the fact that that's what I'm looking at is actually all the structure of it. Right. It's there and it's, it's not there. I think in some ways, in a lot of ways, that the same is true with light. And maybe as designers, we should ask ourselves, is that what matters? What, what really matters in what we do? Is it to create an understanding of how what we do functions? and have people understand the nuances of the way our systems work? Or is it more of creating a broad sense, sort of a bigger feeling, sort of a a macrocosmic look that takes the wider view in that the sum is greater than all of the parts. And it's really the sum that matters to the end user. And that's where we should focus. Because I think when we do that, some of the other things, those, those scary monsters we were talking about a minute ago, all those headaches that happen during the design process, and no matter how good you are, there will be some. We can put them in context a little bit. And it's so easy to get caught up in that. But if we say, no, what we do matters because of this broad feeling it creates for the people who are in and around our spaces, then we're able to put it in perspective and, and really focus on why we do what we do. When it comes to being able to focus on why we do what we do, take those scary monsters, maybe just make them monsters or even bring them down to human level. Moderately threatening. <laughs> Moderate, moderately threatening. Or even just take it and put it all away and ask of it that, you know, clients understand the process and ultimately entrust consultants to both be able to divine, you know, the integrity and the aesthetic of engineering as an entity, in this case, both, you know, illumination engineering and structural engineering, where do you think they still need a little bit more help in understanding that entire process and value and paying for both versus maybe just one or the other? Well, I think it comes down to the fact that what you just said assumes that there's a difference between the client and the designer. And I would argue that the client is in many ways an equal partner in the design process. When you start to view it from that perspective and you incorporate the client in a meaningful way into the decision-making process, then you can more easily show where the value is because they're part of developing the design that they're going to live with for the next 30, 50, 100 years. If they're part of those decisions and they're part of the conversations and they can sort of see how the sausage gets made, so to speak, then it becomes more tangible and they start to get those aha moments. It shouldn't be all those things that we talked about and the creative process and sharing ideas and collaboration, that doesn't end with the architects and engineers. The client needs to be a part of that. If, if they're not, it's not going to work. They need to be educated. They need to understand that process along with joining you and going through it together. When you look at the landscape of, of what's out there today in terms of tools to do that or means to do that, whether it's understanding the entire design process or being educated on what they're about to walk into a conversation on so that they can contribute at the appropriate right level. What do you think there is out there today and what still needs to be developed? There's not enough. Uh, It's Unless you've lived in a project before and learned lessons from it, 
and taken those to apply to the next project, of course, they probably won't, and you'll learn a whole new set of lessons. Uh, aside from direct experience, there's not a lot out there. Now, there's resources like owner's reps and, and things like that that clients can draw from, and some big institutions have a deeper pool of knowledge. People come from industry to those institutions. There is knowledge exchanged, but I think it's important to have third parties, uninterested parties, disinterested parties, to be able to, to share knowledge impartially and be able to educate in a meaningful way uh, that doesn't feel like a lecture, that doesn't feel like they're being talked down to or sold something. I think that that's an important part. And, and clients, of course, or many of our clients that are professionals in and of themselves are always needing uh, continuing education in one form or another. And I think talking about these concerns, there's not a lot out there that in the continuing education world even that addresses these concerns. If you could pull that crystal ball out of the cabinet, or let's just say the magic lamp and say, hey, you know, I wish that this existed or a new online school is educated for it or this is an insane idea. It's like, you know, take 1% of the profit of the entire industry and dump it into an educational organization for it. Where would we start? How far do we need to go to educate these people, to bring them to the table in a way that they can not get frustrated with the fact that their time's being wasted because they don't get what they're talking about? Well, you say it's a crazy idea, but we already do it. AIA, ASCE, uh, ASME, all these different organizations, professional organizations, provide significant amounts of education and invest significantly in the development and advancement of the professions, the design professions. The problem is that a lot of times they do it in isolation, so it's very insular. We're teaching ourselves. We're talking to other professionals. We need to, I think, take some portion of that and look outward and address client concerns and educate our clients about the value of the services we provide to avoid becoming commoditized, but more importantly, to help projects move smoother so that clients know what to expect, when to expect it, and to really understand what all of the different professions bring to the table and why they do what they do. When it comes to talking outside of your circle, your inner circle of the people you practice with or, or the broader community that is in your silo, so to speak, is the best opportunity to talk to the trade across the office, so to speak? Is it to run through nonprofits? Just, you know, in your opinion, how might we best cross-pollinate? Or, or, or teach or teach each other or rather I might even just say how in the hell do you get a structural engineer interested in lighting and vice versa you mean besides podcasts yeah and you yeah. <laughs> well I think I think everything you just mentioned is, is yeah. are, are proven ways and, and there's a long history of that but I think we got to think bigger uh, it's a new world where boundaries have broken down geographically. Things are changing, they're changing quickly, and the exchange of knowledge should follow suit. Uh, it should be more fluid. How we do that? Well, new forms of media, seriously, like podcasting. But I think also to reach a broader audience, to not just, we, we want to move beyond the echo chamber. No matter how diverse a design culture we create, it's still a design culture. And so we need to think about ways to put what we do out there in the general interest to have, you know, maybe it's a TV show, maybe it's a publication in a general interest newspaper or online magazine or something, something that 
people who don't live and breathe design, who don't live and breathe engineering, are going to interact with in a meaningful way. And we have to do it on other people's terms. We can't be caught in the technical garble that, you know, throwing acronyms around at each other that we know, but other people don't. We have to break down the barriers that make us seem separate from the communities we serve. Breaking down the barriers of what we want to say versus what they want to hear. It's all about meeting people where they're comfortable, being able to relate to them, and welcoming them to learn more about what you do on their terms, on their time, the way they want. John, this has been an incredible conversation. We could obviously sit here and talk for another four hours about four more different ways to to break all this down and you know probably sketch out a hundred ideas and thousands of pieces of content that could go a million places. Unfortunately, I know that uh, we're not, we don't have as much time as we want to do that today because there's snow waiting in the mountains. It's wintertime in Colorado. And uh, let's face it, we got eight inches of snow <laughs> last night. <laughs> but we can definitely continue this conversation. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to not only see what people have to say about this. Um, you know, I look forward to hearing the feedback. But if there's anybody that would like to get in touch with you to maybe just, you know, mull over this a little bit more or share their experience and what's worked and, um, you know, start to empower that collective genius a little bit more, what's the best way people can get in touch with you? Well, email is always good. Roach at canadesign.com. And I'm on LinkedIn, so you can find me there too. And also, the Structural Engineering Group at Canada Design has their own Instagram page, and it's one of the best things on the internet. And so does our lighting studio. So you can follow both of those. I mean, Instagram's awesome. You just slide into DMs all day long. Canon Design Structural, Canon Design Lighting. Find John on LinkedIn. And if you're just awesome and old school, open up your email and send him one. I promise you, he only gets a thousand of them a day. So he'll get to yours eventually. John, as we let you go uh, to enjoy your weekend here in Colorado, do you have any other closing thoughts or things you might share with us? Well, I think it's been a great conversation, and I, I think this is a dialogue. So I'm, I'm real interested to see what other people have to say. I think that what you're doing here and what we're doing here is important because it helps break down some of those barriers and really changes the way people think about engineering and design and creates some thought-provoking conversation. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. See you. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Light Pod. If you enjoyed it, do me a favor and click that like, follow, or subscribe button. That's the best way to never miss another episode where we talk to people about all things lighting who have inspirational and thought-provoking conversations to share. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.